At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grosso. Tonight on Fast, we are following the after-hours action in shares of Lyft and Cisco. Both stocks on the move after reporting results. We'll dive into the numbers. Plus, ticked off how the big battle over TikTok could come into play during the next round of trade talks with China. And later, we are continuing our week-long series on the cannabis craze. Truly blazing higher today on earnings. We'll talk to the company's CEO about those results and what is next for this dispensary. But we start off with record high watch. The S&P 500 just six points shy from its previous record high close set on February 19th. February 19th. That seems like so long ago. That really got us thinking, what a different world that was back then. So we want to fire up the Fast Money Time Machine for a trip back there to February 19th. And hey, look at that. Our traders there on set all together at the NASDAQ market site. We even had the NASDAQ president and CEO, Adina Friedman, on, on the show that night on set. That was fun. You might be thinking to yourself, this is some old-timey footage of people dining together at a restaurant once upon a time. But, but no, that was just February 19th. They're all sitting inside a restaurant. Can you imagine that? And check out the theater goers, all lined up, smiling faces, ready to see a Broadway show. And while we're at it, there was also an NBC News Democratic debate in Nevada that night. That very night. Take a look at that. Hi, Bloomberg. Hey, Mayor Pete. Also close. They're hugging, shaking hands. So much closeness. Anyway, the entire world has clearly changed since February 19th. But the stock market, it's back to where it was. Guy, what's your take on this record comeback? Well, what you didn't tell the audience, though, Mel, is you were also playing the piano for this uh, <laughs> little this little segment we did. You're multi-talented. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 incredible. It's in a word incredible. Listen, I think if you watch the show, you know that I've been extraordinarily skeptical for quite some time, and I still remain so. You know, we've tried to point out some trades that have worked along the way that haven't worked, but you know, you look at this and you say to yourself, how is this possible given the backdrop of the employment picture that we're seeing? Uh, the fact that although a lot of people seem to think that that some vaccine is on the horizon, it doesn't really seem to be anything in the foreseeable future. Uh, then you lay on top of that the fact that. S&P 500, the forward earnings, are trading close to 26 times forward earnings. That's a level we haven't seen in 20 years. Market cap to GDP is 170%. That's the one indicator that Warren Buffett looks at. I mean, there's so many things to be fearful of, except the fact that the market just goes up every single day. So it's extraordinary. Uh, It it's, perplexes me. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens in the weeks to come. Yeah. Steve Grasso, we are here, but should we be here? Yeah, I think we should be here only because you have the Fed, you have stimulus, you have the bridge to wherever we're going right now. The day of reckoning and not here yet. So this is perfect spot to be. I think the day of reckoning is when the stimulus has stopped, when the Fed is not backstopping, uh, where we're back to starting up the economy and things are falling short. But can you imagine 
what time would the Fed not be there? What time would the stimulus checks not be there? That's why the market continues to grind higher, in my opinion. But there should be, I mean, I would think that there would be diminishing returns to what the Fed is doing at some point, Tim, before the actual end of Fed stimulus. There, there will be, but, but I, I think you know, we're, we're trying to you know, snapshot Feb 19. Where were we? Uh, first of all, we were at an extraordinary place, I think, in the market. It makes it even more extraordinary we've gotten back there. But you know, I, I'll say that the Fed and, and the fiscal response were, were uh, extraordinary, and they were very quick. Remember, at, at other times when we've had crisis and we've had the financial crisis, we've had uh, other moments where there's a question about how much should be thrown at the problem. Uh, there was no question. This Federal Reserve uh, and, and this administration went hard at it, and I think that is part of what's going on. The other thing is think about where rates were. Uh, yes, uh, you know, by February 19th, the, the long end of the curve was starting to price in some fear of, of maybe what was going on in other parts of the world. Um, but again, yields were twice as high as they were. Uh, so that's another dynamic that I think has been very supportive to equities. Ultimately, you have a case here. Uh, Never in my time uh, picking stocks have we seen a case where investors have been willing to throw out the next year and a half of earnings effectively and look towards 2022. That's where we got to. That's the biggest mulligan I've ever seen, mm -hmm. along with the biggest stimulus plan I've ever seen. Uh, and here we are. And I think, you know, I, I think uh, as long as the Fed is your friend, um, that's the most important thing. Karen, you're in the market, but it does it has sounded in the past that you are sort of skeptical or a little bit fearful about where where we are. What what makes you the most nervous at this point and what areas of the market? Well, I get you know, it's important to note. So we're at the same level, but we didn't make it back where we lost it. Right. We had so many winners and so many losers mm -hmm. that still continue to be losers. So yeah. obviously, Fang, you know, at absolute all time highs. That's been so much of the pull back up. And then on the flip side, you have banks and airlines and restaurants and retailers. So that divergence has just gotten incredibly wide. Now, a lot of that is deserved, right? I mean, what's happened to the airlines is, is it's, it's just a disaster for their balance sheets. It's a disaster for the, for the business. I mean, you can't look at that and say, well, they've underperformed so much, they must be a buy. I, I'm sort of afraid for them. And, you know, if that's that's an area that I, I can't touch. There are some that I can, which are banks. And so banks really have underperformed a lot. Uh, I'm surprised, actually, they were down today. I actually bought some more Wells Fargo today. I thought that CPI, the CPI numbers were, were very hot and we saw the 10 year move. And I think that banks should move on the heels of that. So it, it's not um, while we're back to the same level. It's a very different story of who's, of who's done well and who hasn't. Yeah. What are some of the areas of the market, Guy, you think should have done better, even with this COVID dip and comeback? Yeah, I'm surprised, actually. Health care has done well. Mm -hmm. Biotech's done well. I thought, actually, if you had asked me, you know, if you had asked me six months ago and told me what was going to transpire, I would have said pharma, big cap pharma, and, and biotech would have done even better. So I'm surprised. And just to sort of... Tim is correct in terms of the Fed being your friend when looking at through the prism of uh, equity prices. Without question, there's no denying that. But if you somehow think the Fed is your friend in terms of what it's done, and this is just my opinion, I think shared by a lot of people, for, equity, for you know, inequality in terms of the balance sheets of this country, they're anything but your friend. And quickly, in terms of interest rates, again, Tim is right. But think about this for a second. In terms of percentage moves, 10-year yield should be the most liquid asset on the history of mankind, and it's moved 32% from the 
less than 51 basis points a week or so ago to levels we're seeing now. Now, say it's not a big deal. It's a big deal because, you know, for a long time, bond volatility had been tamped down. It seems to be coming back. And that was the precursor to some pretty bad things six months ago. And I'm concerned that the bond volatility could be the precursor to some pretty bad things again. All right. We, uh, with all this all-time high chatter, we ran a screener taking a look at some of the stocks that have been going higher and higher. That's the music. All these names have seen a nice double-digit rally since the February market high, so we thought this would be the perfect time to play America's favorite game, Trade It or Fade It. All right. Let's play. You know how to play it, I think. Um, Square is the first stock up. It is up a whopping 68% since mid-February. Steve, what do you say? Yeah, yeah, so I was just on the call, on a call with the CFO of Square today. If you're buying the stock now, you're betting the long-term goal of of Square, the long-term conquering of the cash app and of small business. Uh, For me, I was in this trade early. I'm out of the name currently. But when you look at the stock price, 150s or so to the current level, uh, it's sold off about 14%. So you're getting a little bit better entry on it. Um, I think it's still a buy. If you want to wait for it to come in, I agree with that. But if you look at, if you, I never even said it, did I? Tra- trade it. Sorry, I apologize. But if you look at international, uh, the revenues there, it's only $240 million against the backdrop of domestic $4.5 billion. I, I think they still have a substantial runway to go internationally to grow. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in and say fade it. I, I just think that um, it's a great company, no question. And I believe that there's growth in front of them. But I think a lot of great things are already priced in. That cash app number, people got so excited about it. But underlying that, you have, you know, a real problem with small, um, small medium-sized businesses. I think they'll grow out of it eventually. But I feel like the stock price has already grown out of it. So I'd be a fade it right here. All right. Next up. NVIDIA in rally mode up 54% since its pre-COVID highs. Tim. So, look, um, but I, I need to point out also that on February 19th, I thought my Mets had the best starting rotation in baseball. Guy, no comment. We, <laughs> we have uh, a very different view right now. All right. So NVIDIA uh, going into COVID was, was certainly a place where you were excited by their gaming business. Uh, their data center business was strong. Um, what we found is that coming through this, uh, gaming has been exploding and, and actually data center is very resilient. And if you look at Bank of America, who just upgraded the stock, I think to you know, 550, uh, they've got about 3.65 billion and a July quarter uh, revenue run rate and a better revenue mix. Uh, and then, you know, you've actually had more resilience from autos and some of the other uh, parts of the, the, the chip complex that they're very involved in. So um, the, the multiple on NVIDIA has never made sense. But when you look at where they're competing in, in the most exclusive part of the chip space with the highest margin, um, it's no wonder uh, that they are not only a have, but I think that this move of 50 percent since COVID in, with the same trends uh, in place, I think you stay here. And that, I'm reluctant to do that based upon valuation. It's certainly always been my call here. Uh, but I think NVIDIA stays the course. All right. Check out the move in DPZ. Domino's Pizza up 33% since mid-Feb. Guy. You know, kudos to Steve, who, you know, a couple of years ago talked about Domino's being a tech play, not a pizza delivery play. And that proved to be correct. But it's had a pretty unbelievable move over those last couple of years. Valuation is probably stretched. You're through earnings 
31 times. I think a lot of analysts probably have a 400 to a $410 price target on it. And that's effectively where we are now. So if you've enjoyed the move in dominoes, I say fade it, play the graphic there. And real quick, Mel, in terms of Tim's uh, quip about the Mets, I could be taking the uh, ball every five days and Met fans would somehow think they still have the best rotation in baseball because that's just <laughs> Met fans. Please don't at me. <laughs> all right, let's go to Target. Um, the retailer notching an all-time high today, and shares are actually up 14% since mid-February. Karen. Yeah, I think it was up partially on a J.P. Morgan call, uh, an upgrade. I mean, I really like the story of Target. I think they've done a great job in the pandemic. But I think more importantly for the longer-term story is that I think they're going to be able to keep a lot of those new customers that they got. And they've had some margin pressure during the pandemic, but I think they'll be able to work through that. I think their mix will be a little better. I think some of their expenses will come down. And so for the longer term, I like Target. If I could just throw in a would you rather, I'd rather have Walmart. I have more of that than Target, but I do have both. So it was a little trader faded in a would you rather. So unexpected coming from Karen Feinerman going rogue. (laughs) Steve Basso, what do you say? I would be a fader of this one. This was, this was one that I believe we unanimously traded on the desk uh, back in April when it was crossing over $100. And then 110 we said buy it, then 115 then 120 I think it's overextended here. I think it's flattening out. And I think there's, uh, you know, maybe with these price targets that J.P. Morgan is putting on it, maybe you have a couple more days left uh, in, the, in the engine. But I think you want to be a fader of this. It's moved too far too fast. All right. We've got a news alert here on the stimulus talks. Let's get to Elon Moy in Washington with the latest. Elon. Melissa, we are now hearing from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin on a phone call he had earlier today with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Democrats had said that Mnuchin made an overture, but that the administration was unwilling to budge from its position. Mnuchin now saying that that statement is not an accurate reflection of the conversation. He said that Democrats signal that they are unwilling to keep talking unless the White House agreed in advance to a $2 trillion package. He went on to list areas where the administration is willing to keep negotiating, including schools, child care, hospitals, PPP, rental assistance. But the Treasury Secretary is saying that the Democrats have no interest in negotiating. So, Melissa, we are still at stalemate despite these tentative attempts at restarting the talks. Back over to you. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy, you know, for, for this whole entire time with stocks marching to record highs, Tim, the assumption is a deal gets done. Does this throw any water on that? Uh, you know, I, I, I think the assumption is that a deal still gets done. So um, I, I, I agree with you. It, it would throw water. Um, but I, I still believe that the Federal Reserve is the most important dynamic here. I do think there's also a place for the administration uh, for the president to uh, at least to jawbone uh, that he is there to throw uh, more unemployment benefits and to actually be there for folks that need it. I think it's part of the White House's strategy. I realize Congress is in a very different place. Uh, but. I, I, I still think that the fiscal that we're expecting in terms of uh, a broader you know, infrastructure plan and other places, I, I, I think, is not what the market needs right now. The market needs the Federal Reserve and, and they need that the consumer is going to be supported or the unemployed will have uh, you know, additional unemployment benefits. All right. Let's do some charting here with stocks sitting near record highs. Where does the market go from here? Let's go off the charts with Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. What are you watching, Rob? Hey, great. Thanks, Melissa. So, look, a lot of stocks have run an awful long way, and I can see why people would be concerned about the market, you know, potentially rolling over, and particularly as we get this, these headwinds coming from the uh, from the political side. 
But I think really the key point is when we step back and you look at the long-term pattern for the market, that long-term uptrend off the 2009 lows, and it continues to rebound off that 200-week or four-year moving average. So that structural trend is still very much intact. So we can get wiggles along the way. But the bigger picture, the market cycle, again, we had a low in 2020, one right in 2016, another one at the end of 2011. It's very consistent with this four-year cycle. And we think there's still more upside through year-end, through 2020, and well into 2022. So, yeah, in the very short term, if you look at a, you know, a daily chart of the S&P, it's come a long way. We're getting close to the highs. And you wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of wiggles. We've got back-to-school issues coming up. There's seasonal weakness in October and September and October. Uh, there's debate about the consequences of 250,000 folks at Sturgis Motorcycle Rally when they get back. Don't know how that's going to turn out. Uh, and then there's the election. So, yeah, there could be wiggles. But if you look at the daily uh, chart on the S&P, there's still quite a lot of support around the 50-day moving average. That's about 5% down from where we are in the 200 days, somewhere between 7 and 8%. So, yeah, there could be some hiccups. But the bigger picture is still higher for longer. And we look at the relative performance on this daily chart, that relative performance of stocks to bonds is starting to move out of that two, two-and-a-half-month trading range. So we're still pretty optimistic about what we see in equities for long-term investors. And you've got two ideas, Rob, that you want to run through? Yeah, I think that the there's a lot of rotation going on, right? We've got a lot of secular growth working. Uh, I think names like Deckers in the consumer space, sort of a leadership stock for those that still want momentum but don't want such high P.E. momentum names that's coming out of this multi-year or 12-month trading range with new relative highs. And at the other end, something like a Dollar Tree, down and out. But really, when you look at that profile, it's been in the consolidation for almost four years, and it's just starting to resolve uh, through that trading range. I think there's more upside in both those names. Rob, good to see you. Thank you. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. Guy, I know you've been talking about Dollar Tree for um, a while, building four-year base. (laughs) Dollar dollar Gen, Dollar Dollar Tree. All the dollars. Dollar Store. All the, all the dollar. Why not cover your bases, as they say? You know, it's interesting. Dollar Gen's been a monster. Dollar Tree has lagged. Um, 117, I think, was the October high. I mean, given the environment we find ourselves in, it's reasonable to think we get there. But I'd rather stay long Dollar Gen than try to pick the, the laggard in Dollar Tree. But, you know, I like the whole dollar thing. It's, as they use, you know, joker, joker, joker in the triple, dollar, dollar, dollar in the triple. So cover your bases, Melbs. Coming up, we've got our eye on a couple of big earnings movers this evening. We'll dive into the numbers from Lyft and Cisco and later. Is there a doctor in the house? The latest product seeing massive shortages due to the pandemic. We'll tell you what that is when Fast Money returns. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got earnings alerts on Cisco and Lyft, both stocks on the move after reporting their latest quarterly results. Deidre Bose is standing by in Lyft, but we kick things off with Kate Rooney and Cisco. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Cisco beating expectations for the prior quarter, but forward guidance falling short of Wall Street estimates. The headline numbers were pretty much in line. Fiscal fourth quarter revenue came in at $12.15 billion. That was a 9% decline year over year and its first annual sales decline in three years. Still better than expectations, though. Adjusted EPS, a beat by six cents. The guidance, though, for Q1, that is weighing on shares of Cisco after hours. The company forecasting EPS about five cents shy of what analysts were expecting. And they're looking for another revenue drop of 9%. CEO Chuck Robbins saying on the call just now the results reflect, quote, an on- the ongoing challenges of the current environment, the pandemic has had the biggest impact on Cisco's core business of selling routers and switches. That was hit by enterprise and commercial clients reining in spending. On the bright side, though, COVID has also triggered a, quote, massive and rapid shift to remote operations and automation. Cisco's changing up R&D investments to focus more on areas that accelerated during the pandemic. Chuck Robbins mentioning 5G and Wi-Fi as examples. Cisco also announcing about a billion dollars in cost cutting And one note on reorganization. The company's longtime CFO, Kelly Kramer, announcing she will retire but stay on until Cisco finds a successor. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate. Thanks, Kate Rooney. Um, Tim Seymour, what do you make of this quarter, their guidance, the fact that they are not doing well even in this time when tech is being given such a premium? Yeah, you know, and I'm a Cisco shareholder, and I've often touted them as being value in mega cap tech, and maybe there's a reason for it. I mean, they're also, you know, they've been slowly trying to shift from a hardware reliance in some of the enterprise, but also to software, especially in the security side, which to me I, I thought was going to be a driver to gross margins and has been slower, but I still think it's very much a theme. Uh, look, you know, great EPS, softer guide, that's really, uh, unfortunately, what uh, you don't want to hear. Um, and, and talking about cost cutting and saving a billion dollars is not uh, what you want to hear at a time when there are other folks in the enterprise space that are that are cleaning up. So uh, this is frustrating. I think, you know, around forty four, forty five dollars is pretty good level of support. Let's see where this thing settles in. Um, but I, I, I think the valuation still there's a lot of support. This wasn't devastating. And they've been known to be uh, you know, very conservative mm-hmm. on the guy. They seem to be a little bit on the back, but I mean, to hear that they're now increasing research and development on things like 5G and Wi-Fi at a time when everybody's working from home, Karen, I mean, I would have thought that, you know, if they had invested that before. They also have WebEx, which in an era where everybody's on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, you don't hear, I'm going to Cisco WebEx you later on today. Uh, You know, that's just not part of the (laughs) the jargon anymore or ever. (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of right. I think, right, that, that ship has sailed. So that's unfortunate. I mean, you know, Tim is talking about they're, they're trying to shift to a mix of less hardware, more software and services, obviously trying to get a better multiple there. I'm kind of surprised the stock's down as much as it is. I mean, it is a value name. It's not like it was trading at a crazy multiple. They do have a fantastic balance sheet. So um, I don't own it, but I might be overdone a little bit here on the downside. And maybe they are being somewhat conservative. It's sort of surprising they would go from a quarter where they meet to one where the revenue is really, the forecast is pretty disappointing. So um, I don't know. The value girl in me is starting to maybe get interested here. All right. By the way, we're going to hear from Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins tonight on Mad Money. That's 6 p.m. Eastern time. Let's get to Lyft now. Uh, the stock is lower in the after-hour session. Deidre Bose has been listening in on the call. She'll, she's got the highlights. Deidre. 
Melissa, Lyft shares turned lower in the after hours on this comment from co-founder and president John Zimmer. We may appeal this ruling and request a further stay. If our efforts here are not successful, it would force us to suspend operations in California. This relates, of course, to the California ruling earlier this week that will require both them and Uber to treat employees as drivers, rather, as employees. Now, the stay on that injunction expires August 20th. Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi has also raised the possibility that Uber would shut down entirely, too, if their appeal is not accepted by the court. That means, guys, that within just over a week, Ride sharing in California could be virtually shut down with major implications for riders, drivers and, of course, their income during a recession. For the companies themselves, you have to imagine the financial hit would be significant. California represents a major market, but the hit perhaps not as big as turning 100,000 plus contractors into employees. Zimmer also just said on the call that California makes up 16 percent of total rides. On the quarter itself, though, Lyft is keeping its focus on ride sharing despite the huge hit to the business amid the pandemic. Revenue dropped by more than 60 percent, but the company also cutting costs substantially so that even if rides don't fully recover and they see 20 to 25 percent fewer rides, a leaner structure will keep them, they say, on profitability, their profitability target on track for Q4 of next year. CEO Logan Green said that he is encouraged by recovery trends. He says rides are up nearly 80 percent in July from April and 12 percent growth from June to July. So, of course, that's coming off a very low point, Melissa, and a lot of different factors in play here. But they are having a leaner cost structure. But regulation remains a big risk factor. Back to you. Deidre, just to be clear, when when Khazar Shahi is talking about shutting down business in California, that is that would be a temporary move until he hears the appeal. Is that correct? It could be that actually happens if the appeal does not go through or there isn't a further say. So potentially mm-hmm. you're looking at ride sharing being shut down from now until the November election. So that is when oh, wow. Uber and Lyft are putting it to voters on a ballot mm-hmm. initiative. OK, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Uh, Steve Brasso, where, I mean, imagine if 16 yeah. percent of your business were gone from now until November. Yeah, it's a problem. And when you look at the stock, the 100-day the moving average is 30.95. Lyft is currently trading at 30.10. This is almost a lottery ticket at this point. I, I wouldn't be willing to take a bet on it. But we understand why management is making it such, such a dire, extreme situation, because it is. And they don't want to tip their hand. So for me, going into the appeal, they're saying that they're going to be crushed. So they might be leaning towards... Um, saying that their business in California is going to be zero. But I think there's probably light at the end of the tunnel. You have to be risky to, to take a shot, though, here. I'd wait for it to trade above that 3095 level, which is the 100 day if you want to be conservative with your money. All right. Coming up, we've got new developments in the big battle over TikTok, how they could have a major impact on companies like Apple. Longtime investor Roger McNamee will join us. And later, we're getting in the weeds again for the third part of our Cannabis Craze series. The CEO of Trulieve is with us. That stock's soaring today after posting record revenues last quarter, raising guidance. We'll talk about it all when Fast Money returns. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. 
Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got new polling on the big battle over TikTok, CNBC's latest States of Play survey showing only 15 percent of voters in battleground states feel favorably toward the popular app, while 41 percent are unfavorable. Reuters reporting today that President Trump's executive order banning TikTok could go as far as forcing Apple and Google to remove it from their app stores. Let's get a reaction from Roger McNamee, the co-founder of Elevation Partners, an early investor in Facebook and Google. You are a current investor in Apple as well, Roger, so the perfect person to, uh, to comment on this. Um, what would do that, that do to Apple? Because we're not talking just about TikTok, but potentially WeChat and the impact, I would think, in the U.S. for TikTok and the impact in China on WeChat would be tremendous in terms of sales of handsets. Yeah, Melissa, I think this is an issue for Apple for a slightly different reason than people believe. So removing the most popular teenager app from the app store would obviously be undesirable from Apple's point of view. But it is no different than the situation for Google with Google Play. Where Apple has a problem is that China is an unbelievably important market for it. And given the increasing tensions between the U.S. and China, Apple risks being a pawn in that battle. And from a shareholder point of view, that makes me nervous. I think Apple has done an amazing job of balancing itself through all of that. But things are getting really weird right now. And the issues that we're raising about TikTok are actually largely true of Google, Facebook, and also data uh, brokers in the United States. That is, China already has our data. That's not what this is really about. I suspect that uh, deep down underneath, Sarah Cooper and her uh, humor may also be a factor. In terms of how Apple navigates this, I mean, Tim Cook obviously has a good uh, relationship, or it appears to be a good relationship with the Trump administration, also has a pretty decent relationship with China. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering how, how they sort of get through this and, and what yeah. tack Tim Cook should take? I, I wish I knew the answer. I mean, the obvious answer of this thing would be for the United States to have a less emotional foreign policy relative to China. I don't see any sign that that's going to happen in the near term. And so I do think we do need to be cautious as investors about what the risk is here. And, you know, I think Apple is amazingly well positioned for the issues that are going on right now, the probability of greater regulation of privacy favors them. The probability of greater regulation of other aspects of uh, internet platforms, particularly safety, that also favors them. Mm -hmm. And, But the China thing is, it's unknown. And I don't want to pretend like I've got a crystal ball here. Right. I just know that Apple's in a unique position and it's got work to do to make sure that it doesn't uh, wind so, up inadvertently being on the wrong side of it. So here's the question. With the context of the stock being 
where it is today. Um, If we do find out that the executive order will include actions such as forcing Apple to take down WeChat from its app store, do you sell Apple stock? So I don't believe that's going to cause a change in my behavior. I think the issues that we're dealing with here go way beyond what's going on with Apple. Think about how our economy is structured. I mean, we built our economy you know, optimizing for shareholders caused us to move labor to the lowest cost places around the world. And China was that for huge parts of our economy. So Apple has political risk because it's so visible. But I think this is an issue throughout the economy. Mm-hmm. And China has shown in the past a willingness to target its responses to Trump's actions very strategically at places that Trump needs politically. And you can imagine they have a lot of power right now to target red states, you know, either in agriculture or other things. So I don't want to pretend like I know what's going to happen. I'm just very nervous about it. And I think investors need to pay attention to it as I'm trying to. Roger, great to speak with you as always. Roger McNamee. Always a pleasure. All right. And the guy that brings us straight to the trade talks, which are supposed to happen at least virtually sometime this week. Roger mentioned agriculture. China still has, I don't know what the figures, more than $100 billion worth of product that they would need to buy in the second half of the year in order to be compliant with the phase one part of the trade deal. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, listen, I, I'll say it again. I want to be clear. I, I think th- there needed to be an administration that took on the Chinese, and and this administration decided to do that. I think many people would say correctly. I know Tim's been outspoken in this as well. My point has been not that, but the fact that the market is looking past the risks associated with that. And to Roger's point, I don't have a crystal ball either. I don't know, but I do think the Chinese will play this in the election, and I do think some shoe will drop at a certain point that potentially could be... um, well, could be negative for the broader market. I understand why, why Apple's in the crosshairs, but I think this has broader market implications as well. Now, as we sit here and we started the show with the basically S&P at all-time highs, NASDAQ at all-time highs, Apple adding a trillion dollars of market cap since the March lows, everything appears to be fine. So why worry? But you do have to point these things out because they definitely lie in, in wait, in my opinion. Yeah. Karen? Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, just think of how iconic Apple is and what a perfect target it would be for the Chinese to make a statement. Um, I, I, in the past, I've been concerned about China trade issues, and yet every time the market just doesn't seem to care at all. I wonder if the market seems to think we'll have a Biden administration, that they think it'll be, they'll have an easier time, uh, or, or, or we'll have a less uh, confrontational relationship with China, which the market, I think, would like. But I am long Apple. I'm staying long. I recognize that's a risk. It wouldn't shock me to see um, some sort of, you know, retaliatory measure and what's better than what's more American than Apple. If you're not going to do it to Disney, I guess, do it to Apple. Right. Coming up, the latest twist in the Kodak saga. New details in the company's lobbying activity ahead of that multi-million dollar deal with the government. And later, another all-time high for chip stocks. Will the record run continue when AMAT reports tomorrow? We'll bring you the trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Kodak taking another leg lower today as the drama around the company continues to swirl. The latest twist, Kodak 
significantly upped its lobbying spending before being awarded a $765 million government loan. According to Reuters, Kodak spent $870,000 in lobbying efforts between April and June. Compare that to less than $5,000 it spent in Q1 of 2019. Now, as we've been reporting here on Fast Money, the rise in Kodak shares before news officially broke of that government loan sparked concerns of insider trading and an SEC probe. In the company's earnings call last night, Kodak CEO said he supports the government's decision to put the loan on hold until an investigation is complete. Karen, you have puts in this stock. What is remarkable is that it's nowhere near the level it was trading at prior to the, you know, when the loan was announced. Right. I know it's 500 percent more than that. It's interesting to me that that's a great return on those lobbying dollars. Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, eight hundred thousand dollars got a seven hundred sixty two million dollar loan or whatever it might be. I think the CEO had to say that. I don't really know what else he can say. Like, don't disregard those that all that option noise. Give us the money anyway. I think that this I, I, I think it's sort of become an embarrassment um, to the Trump administration, and they probably should just, I mean, I'm speaking now, someone who's long puts, right, that um, they should just let this one go and not, not fund this loan. It's too noisy. Yeah, Tim? And that, I mean, yeah. it, 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 every part of that option is just terrible. Right. Tim? Well, it, it gets back to, you know, even if they get the loan, um, are, are they the right company to be producing the, these pharmaceutical You, you don't know, think a, photogra- and, a photography and, uh, company, answer, no. to once upon a time, tr- try to be a blockchain company, now back to a photography company, trying to be a generic a drug maker, a ingredient maker, is the right company? <laughs> Look, I mean, it's just this is a company that has tried to reinvent itself multiple times since the tw- 2012 bankruptcy. Um, and so I, I, I just it's it's hard for me to understand. You know, we, we don't have enough of a show to talk about the, what lobbying efforts are like and, and the impact and, and how this shouldn't happen anyway, even with real companies. Um, but but I think if you look at the trading volume on the stock, it went from trading by appointment to trading 250 million shares uh, at its peak, uh, you know, two weeks ago. Um, it's still trading about nine million shares, so about yeah, 80 million dollars uh, of turnover, which tells you there's just an extraordinary backdrop still. to. I, I agree with Karen. I think there's more to go here. All right. Coming up. It's Weed Week on Fast Money, truly lighting up after a smoking hot earnings report this morning. CEO Kim Rivers joins us to reveal what drove that quarter. And speaking of earnings, Applied Materials gearing up to report tomorrow will lay out what options traders see for that chip stock when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's Weed Week here on the show. All week long, we're doing a deep dive into the cannabis craze. Today, we got some big earnings from some key players in the space, including TrueLeave. Shares of the marijuana dispensary soaring nearly 10% after the company reported record revenues in the second quarter, raised its guidance for the rest of the year. For more on the quarter, we've got TrueLeave CEO Kim Rivers joining us now. Kim, great to have you with us here on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a quarter. Same-source sales were up 30%. The average customer visited a TrueLeave store 2.7 times a month, with the average basket being about 125 bucks a share, uh, excuse me, a visit. Uh, I'm wondering, how, how sticky do you think that behavior is, or is part of that because of the pandemic? Well, you know, we've been tracking patient metrics for a very long time, um, and it's something that we report on quarter over quarter. So if you look at the trend line, 
uh, we're actually stable from uh, Q1 to Q2 on that basket size, as well as that repeat visit. So we have very, very loyal customers. Um, our loyalty rate is at about 76%. Um, that's also up quarter over quarter. And we really pride ourselves in having uh, that loyal customer base, or as we fondly call them, our true leavers, um, you know, come back and see us on a repeat basis. Yep. You got a total of 57 stores nationwide. 55 are in Florida. You got more than 50% market share in that state and flower as well as concentrate. You're, primar- you're a medical cannabis dispensary. Let's make that clear to the audience. So in terms of how much more you can penetrate uh, that market, what, what would that be driven by? Is that just more patients? Is that doctor awareness? How, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the penetration rate in Florida um, has been interesting, and it's been an, on an interesting growth trajectory. So when we look at the um, and we look at the overall market size in Florida, it actually has been growing at astounding rates. So when we entered 2020, we were averaging approximately 2,000 to 2,500 patients joining the Florida Medical Program on a weekly basis. Last week, we added 7,000 patients to the registry here in Florida. So we've got quite quite a bit of runway. Um, we're at about 380,000 patients program-wide in the state of Florida. Um, of course, as a reminder, we've got about 21 million residents. So that's under a 2% absorption rate. When we look at markets such as Arizona and some others, um, they top out at about you know between 35 and 4%. So we have some more runway in Florida, and there's some additional catalysts ahead. So we also have, of course, you know, the potential for adult use or recreational coming on board at some point in Florida, and the more near-term catalysts, such as the adoption of edibles rules, which we're looking to happen very soon by year end, which we think will also drive market growth here in Florida. Tim Seymour is a shareholder. He's got a question, I think, Kim. Tim? Hey, Kim, great numbers. Uh, the, the gross margin is extraordinary, and I, I guess, you know, 77 percent is, is something that's hard to fathom. I realize that the, the tax issues on the retail level, it's, we can't get into it here, but it's very difficult for cannabis companies from the IRS perspective. But is being uh, the dominant player in Florida and choosing to go narrow and deep, unlike other producers in, in the country, uh, part of that gross margin story? And can we expect to see those numbers stay that high? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I think absolutely I would be here to tell you that economies of scale and being able to really reach and have an increased capacity is certainly part of that along with driving efficiencies across the supply chain. So being vertical, of course, that is you're going to have the most margin protection um, in, in any seed to sale business. And um, certainly you may see margins come down once we enter into the wholesale market. That, you know, that margin in the 70 to 75 percent will remain achievable. You know, I mean, look, we have one of the largest cannabis cultivation footprints in the country at 1.8 million square feet. Uh, we produce over, you know, 500 products in-house. And then, as, as you said, distribute to our 55 locations throughout the state of Florida, as well as next day delivery across the state. So certainly having that um, having that scale and capacity certainly drives margin. Um, but also, of course, as I, as I mentioned, making sure that we have that repeat customer and we are really getting to know our customer um, at the at the point of sale is important as well. Kim, great to speak with you. Hope we'll Thanks see you so soon. Much. Kim Rivers right. of TrueLeave. Um, vertical be- meaning, of course, seed to sale, um, Tim. You, you grow and then you sell it. Um, the gross margin you mentioned, yeah. that was a staggering increase up 500 basis points in, in the quarter. Look, they, they're, they're, they're the most profitable company right now in, in the market. I mean, like on 120 million in sales, they did 60 million in adjusted EBITDA. Um, and, and a lot of people have been critical of some of the players. Uh, and we're going to you know, we're essentially referring to the big four this week on the show. We're going to have another CEO on tomorrow. But but TrueLeaf is very different. Um, they decided to 
go after Florida and Florida alone, and, and they dominate Florida. Uh, I think people at some point will wonder when they're going to make their next move. They have a couple dispensaries outside of Florida, but they, they are the Florida play, uh, and it certainly has led to high profitability and, and free cash flow, which that's the key to the industry right now, and that's what you're getting here. All right. Our week-long series on the cannabis craze continues tomorrow with the CEO of Green Thumb. The company just reported results. CEO Ben Kovler will join us to discuss the quarter. Coming up, our trades will tell you how to play the chip rip ahead of an earnings report by one key name in the space. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out some major movers in the chips today. AMD, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Applied Materials, Intel among the day's big winners as the semis hit a brand new all-time closing high. The SMH ETF that tracks the space logging its best day of the month, finishing the day just a few pennies short of a record intraday high. But could today's move be a false start or is tech uh, is this trade back on track? Uh, Steve, what do you say? So we've had value actually outperform for the last three days. So it's Friday, Monday, Tuesday. And usually on average, it's been three-day outperformance of value. And then tech takes the lead again. So I would think that you would start to see money flow back into tech and the semis. And we talked about NVIDIA. That has the best chart in the space. AMD seems like it's rolling over. And believe it or not, Intel seems like it's actually bottoming here I would, I would start to put some money to work in Intel, and that's been out of favor, out of sorts in the whole uh, environment and the whole sector. Guy? Well, Coco Beware is about to come on to talk about a stock, so I won't Mike go Co. there. But I think out of the ones you mentioned, yeah, that's what I said, <laughs> Coco Beware. Qualcomm, to me, is probably the mo- still one of the most interesting. I agree with Steve on AMD. You know, it's had a tremendous move. Hopefully you get an opportunity to buy it back in the low 70s. And Intel does appear to be too cheap. Intel is not going to go up 15% in a day, but you might get in here and sort of do the slow grind back to 55 or so. All right. Well, one of these chip stocks reporting earnings after the bell tomorrow. Option traders are betting the results could push the name even higher. Mike Coe, a.k.a. Coco Beware, has got the action. Mike. Hi, Melissa. So, yeah, we're taking a look at AMAT. This name saw some bullish activity today. Calls out pace puts by more than two to one on above average volume. The options market right now is implying a move of about 4.6 percent. That's in line with the 4.1 percent or so that the stock has averaged over the past eight quarters. And where we saw a lot of that activity were buyers of the weekly 65-67 call spread. That's a $2 wide call spread. They were spending about $1.00 on those spreads. So those are bullish bets. They're basically risking a dollar to potentially make a dollar if earnings turn out to be positive. And this is obviously a way that investors could risk a little to make a little if uh, they get their trade correct. But uh, the quick point that I would make in this situation is that the stock also did rally today and it closed not that far off that $67 price target that they had in mind. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, is there a doctor in the house? The latest product to go missing from store shelves due to the pandemic. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. The pandemic sparking a rush to all kinds of comforts, especially comfort foods. And perhaps sometimes a different kind of doctor is needed. Keurig Dr. Pepper reporting a shortage of its namesake soft drink due to hoarding. The company acknowledging the problem in a tweet writing, we know it's harder to find Dr. Pepper these days. We're working on it. Hang tight. I mean, Karen, I don't know what companies (laughs) do to uh, prevent this sort of shortage in the marketplace. I mean, people hoard, right? 
Well, they, you know, you buy them when they're cheap and nobody wants them, when they're kind of value. And then later, you know, if there's demand for them, you know, it's just a... I know a guy. That's basically how <laughs> that happened. Wow. By the, by the way, that's 18 wow. cans of Dr. Pepper. I got some Fresca, by- too. Fresca's hard to find Ooh, as well. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, if there's a shortage of Dr. Pepper. How about, Dr. Fa- Dr. How about a Fanta? Fanta. Which flavor Fanta? Mr. Pibb Tab? is a stand-in for Dr. Pepper, though. I don't know if you've ever had a Mr. Pibb. I, I was around when they created it. By the way, I say complete horse hockey on this Dr. Pepper. I think it's a masterful oh, marketing, marketing campaign by aforementioned Dr. Cap Pepper. So Interesting. There. All right. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Drinking some Dr. Pepper with my Domino's pizza. <laughs> Karen. Yeah, I like Wells Fargo here. Good value. Steve. Sonos going higher. Guy Adami. Xilinx begins with an X and ends in an X, Mel. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.